You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We started a new series through the Old Testament book of Joshua, and this offers us this little slice of history of God's people. This is post-rescue from slavery in Egypt, and even post this long this generation of wandering in the wilderness, and they're on the banks of the Jordan River and about to cross into the promised land that God had promised to Abraham. And they're about to take, uh, they're about to cross. And we continue to look through Joshua chapter one, finishing up the first chapter. Why don't we go to God's word? We'll start reading in chapter one, verse 10, through the rest of the chapter. Let's go to God's word. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed men before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan towards the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you've commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This is God's word. Well, there are a lot of obstacles for God's people as they are on the edge of this river and about to cross and go into the land of promise that has been given to them. And it's not an easy thing what awaits them. There's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of obstacles. There's armies. There's occupied cities. There are enemies that wait for them. There's fortresses. Uh, Jericho is there, a fortress of a city with armed guards, and not to mention the Jordan River, this big river before them, which we are told uh, at this time, it is overflowing its banks. It is the deepest and widest that it has been, and the river is spilling over its banks. It is raging in the most tumultuous way it ever has. And God is saying, this is the perfect time to cross. And isn't that like God, a lot of times how he does that? He doesn't command them to say, hey, wait, the tide will change. Uh, it will, he doesn't say go in when it lowers, when it's safer, when it's more comfortable and easier to cross. He says, now is the time. Because when God commands us to trust in him, he's not relying on our ability. He's not relying on our circumstances. When God tells us to trust in him, he tells us to have courage, not in ourselves not in our ability. He tells us to have courage in him, in his promises, in his ability, in his strength, and in his courage. And this is the life of a Christian that is required of us, to have courage, not in ourselves, but in God who promises. And a lot of times we regard Christian courage, sometimes no more than just self-control and an exercise of our will. 
Be courageous in the Lord. And sometimes all that means to us is just dig deep, try harder, work harder, give more of excellence to God. But Christian courage is, it's not about giving our best. Christian courage is not about putting in our maximum effort. Christian courage is not about the sheer strength of our will. As if, as if God is just giving us a pep talk for how to be stronger. Christian courage is less about the measure of our faith and more about the object of our faith. God is saying, be courageous. Why? Because he is strong and he has promised to us and he is faithful. Christian courage is about trusting in God whose word is always faithful. This is supernatural faith. This is supernatural faith for a Christian, a, a courage that comes not from within us, but outside of us. A courage in a God who is with us and doesn't forsake us. And if we're careful, I mean, sorry, if we're not careful, we can see the stories of Joshua uh, becoming nothing more than just a manual for how to overcome our challenges in our life through our own strength. And we don't want that to happen. This is not, this is not where the stories of Joshua lead us. It doesn't lead us to just our own grit, strength, and our own determination to follow God. But they lead us to see a God who's courageous. To, they lead us to see a God who's faithful, who's strong, who cares for us, who's with us, who helps us in our time of need, and to trust in him with our whole heart. And Joshua has this kind of supernatural faith, the faith that is not natural. And in the midst of very natural stressors and natural fears, like people and death to his own body and the care of the people that have been entrusted to him and provisions of food and water, all natural things and natural fears, God calls him to a supernatural face of faith in, in the midst of all of this. And so he shows us here this, some signs of supernatural faith that he expresses as a result of his faith in God and something that we can also be mindful of for our own faith as well. We're going to see a few things. We're going to see that supernatural faith is an unwavering devotion to the word of God. We'll see that it is entering into God's rest and adopting a faith mantra. Why don't we look first at unwavering devotion to the word of God? This is the first sign of Joshua's faith that we see is unique, that it is good, that it is right where God desires him to be. In verse 10 through 11, we see that Joshua commands the officers of the people to do these very practical things, right? The instructions are very practical. They're very physical and everyone is involved. He says, get the food that you need, gather enough food, gather enough water, gather the things that you need and all the provisions you need for this journey because in three days, we are going to take this journey of a lifetime. We're gonna cross the Jordan and we will encounter great trouble, but God is with us. The river is pouring over. It is going over its banks. Never has it been more flooded than it is right now in this season. And God gives to Joshua this command. Now is the time to cross it. It's a time to get up, to take my people across the Jordan into the land that I've promised to you. How easy would it have been for Joshua to hear God's command, to look at the river, to look at his circumstances, and to kind of adjust God's commands to kind of better fit his circumstances. How easy would it have been for him to go to the people and say, you know, God says that we should, we need to cross the Jordan, and, and, but we should wait a little bit until the, the river is a little bit more calm and maybe a little lower 
and a little safer to cross because God wouldn't want us to cross and to lose our lives. And so let's wait for a little bit. It, how easy would it be for him to say, God said that we should you know, spend the next few months like building a bridge and crossing the Jordan on, on a dry bridge. That seems very practical for us. God said on, on second thoughts, I, there's great views on this side of the river. Let's just build kind of our camp here and live here. And what's a hundred yards? But no, Joshua relayed God's word just as it had been told to him, to the people without question, without wavering. And through the officers of God's people, he says this, pack up, get what you need to survive the journey. We leave in three days. This is what God has said. And he has this unwavering devotion to the word of God, showing that his faith is in God, not in his own strength, not in his own might. The Lord has given us this land and he will be with us wherever we go. This is what he has told us. And let's go. We see this supernatural faith in Joshua, not only in him, but also in the people of God. So the people here represented by the officers of God's people, appointed over God's people to care for them, to exercise mercy and judgment over them, to, to lead them in faithfulness. Here's what they say in verse 16 through 17. They say, we'll do everything you tell us. We believe that God was with Moses. We believe God's with you. We followed Moses and therefore we will follow you. And then there's something kind of strange that they say after they give their unconditional devotion to him. They say, but there's, there are a couple provisions actually. Do you see that? Here it's represented in the English word only, or your, your version might say, uh, except. And so you say, like, we're going to follow you as God has appointed you. We, are going, we know that God is with you as he was with Moses. We're going to obey your commands and anything you say. But these two provisions need to be in place for that to happen. They say, only may God be with you as he was with Moses, and only be strong and courageous. The first is a commitment to faith, and the second is a commitment to obedience. So they're saying, we will do everything that you say, but these are the commitments that you need to have. Have faith in God in what he has promised and do what he says. What, what is a clear sign of a heart that's been changed by God? A clear sign of a commitment to an unwavering faith in God's word. It's very simple. We believe what God has said and we're gonna do what he's asked us to do. We believe God and we'll do what he says. This is the unwavering, like the test of their unwavering faith. We believe him. His word has come to us. We've heard it. And even, even if it seems entirely unnatural and unreasonable, we are going to believe his word because he is a God whose word is faithful and true and good. And he's never gone back on a single thing he's ever said. He has done everything he has ever promised. So we're going to believe what he says. And second, we're going to obey what he asks us to do, even if it seems completely unreasonable. More logic would have said, wait a little while and let the river subside. More logic would have said, take a different route completely. But God brings them to the brink of this, this, this river. And, and what awaits them is a great challenge, great armies and fortified cities. And he says, it's time to get up and to go. Here's the start of Joshua's leadership. The start of his ministry over God's people. God is with Joshua. The people are with Joshua and give their allegiance to him. Plans are ready and they're in place to cross the Jordan. But across the Jordan awaits this fortress of a city waiting to defend themselves against 
intruders, and this city guards the entry into the land of promise that God has given to them. But what we see in the midst of all of that is a God who orchestrates all of this. God who appoints Joshua, God who gives him the favor of the uh, allegiance of the people, a God who has given the land for them to take over. All of this is about God's work in their lives to accomplish what he said is going to happen. He's the central character of this story. God is. It's not about Joshua. It's not about his strength. It's not about these men of valor. This is not about the, 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 the how uh, strong their, their swords are and how sharp their weapons are. It's not even about their obedience that takes center stage in this story. But it's about God who applies his word to our lives and asks us to devote ourselves to what he says without wavering. It's a sign of a, of a faith that is devoted to God. And when we have this faith that is devoted to the word of God, it fills our hearts and it begins to fill our thoughts, our habits, our behaviors, our emotions. It overflows into what I'll call a faith mantra. And this is the second sign of a supernatural faith. Now a faith mantra, now don't think about yoga chanting or like indiscriminate words or just like, decompressing your mind and getting relaxed, right? A, a mantra is just a way of thinking. A mantra is a, a habit of speaking. It is uh, uh, repeated phrases which train our beliefs and train our obedience. It's a way of getting down deep into our hearts, something that we really want to believe. And why do God's people have a need for faith mantra? Because stressful situations often result in stressful thoughts. That's not too groundbreaking, is it? When hard things happen, it tends to really stir our emotions in, in really difficult ways. Stressful situations makes us stressed out. And we start thinking things to ourselves. We all have mantras, whether you know them or not. When stressful things happen in your life, what do you say to yourself? Here we go again. Just keep moving forward. Don't think about it. Just act. I'm such an idiot. Why did I do that again? Why is this happening to me? I'm such a failure. Why would God love me? Ignore it. Maybe it'll go away. What's your mantra when life is hard and you're discouraged and your faith is weak? You're saying something to yourself. What is it? You want to know mine? You're all on your own no one will help you. Is that yours? What is your mantra? Mantras are highly personal. They're deeply meaningful. It's only, our mantras, the things we say to ourselves, are like tailor-made to our insecurities and our particular temptations and challenges in life. But God aims to replace our mantras with something much more true. He wants to replace our destructive mantras with the truth of his word so that what he says begins to be the things that we say to ourselves when things are difficult. That these are truths that we can call upon in times of stress, in times of fear and doubt and insecurities and challenges. And he has given to them during the biggest fight of their life, a mantra that they have evidently kept close into their heart. 
God is with you. Be strong and courageous. It's repeated in chapter one. God speaks this to Joshua twice. And now we see the people, the officers are now speaking it back to Joshua, giving us evidence that Joshua not only heard this from God, but relayed this message to the people. And now the people are talking about this to themselves. God is with you. Be strong and courageous. God is with you. Be strong and courageous. You're about to cross the Jordan. God is with us. Be strong and courageous. It becomes this faith mantra to, to enable them to hold on to the truths that God has spoken to them because things are about to get very hard for them. And there could be a lot of other mantras they could think when Joshua comes to them and says, pack up what you need. We leave in three days. Uh-uh, not me. Can't we stay here? Why would God have us do that? That doesn't sound good at all. What if we die? What's on the other side? All of these things they could be saying to themselves. I wonder if it became such a common mantra, a common way of living and, and way of speaking that it was just a, a way that they just greeted one another in the morning. Good morning, God is with you. Be strong and courageous. Well, thank you, I like those shoes. God is with you. Be strong and courageous. It seems like this was a mantra they used to strengthen each other, encourage each other throughout their life. So Joshua didn't just hear it from God and keep it in his heart and try to apply this truth to himself, but it became a mantra for God's people. Truths to hold onto because faith does not fear and give up. Faith does not throw up our hands. What does faith do? What does supernatural faith do? Here's what it does. Faith, supernatural faith, watches and prays and says, Lord, help me now. Give me your courage. Give me your strength to help in my time of need. Faith that just looks deep into ourself and just tries to uh, muster up our own strength, doesn't cry out for help. What we do is we get the case of the shoulds, right? Oh, I should have done that. I should have done this. I really should do this better. I really need to stop doing that. And we start looking at our own strength and our own character as a way of, of accomplishing or overcoming those challenges in our life. But we replace those mantras with a faith mantra that focuses on God's truth. Faith in what? Or better yet, faith in who? It is faith in God that what he said is true, it's right, it's good. He is with us. Do you have a faith mantra? Uh, what, what are those thoughts that come in your head when things are hard? you probably thinking about those now. I mean, pay attention the next time something really discouraging or challenging or stressful happens, where do your thoughts go? Is it to the truth of God's word or is it to your lack of courage, your lack of strength, your lack of obedience? We can call upon God's truth in times of stress and he will help us. And that's actually a great sign of our faith, a sign of our supernatural faith that God is working in our life when we cry out to him and call out to him. And only then when we have an unwavering devotion to his word and take his word and fill our thoughts with it, can we then really truly are we enabled to enter into his rest. And that's our third sign of a, of a supernatural faith is that, that we're entering into God's rest. Two things that we've learned um, that have spiked, sociologists have learned and studied over the last few years. Two things have spiked in our culture in particular. Um, one is insomnia. People have a hard time sleeping and are stressed out, weary and tired, more difficulty getting their bodies to slow down, and two, car accidents. Maybe those two things are related. We're not 
good at resting. We don't take care of ourselves. And what we know about the people of God here in this slice of history is that they are a group of very weary people. They are a group who are very tired. They're so affected by the disruptions of life. They are in danger of giving up. Imagine this, a journey that should have taken by foot 11 days. 40 years later, they're still waiting. This is, this, not just this day, they have maybe several days they have been thinking, we're never going to get there. Let's just give up. They're weary, they're tired, they lack quality rest in their life. And notice that one of the key blessings and promises that God gives to his people is not just possession of this land, but, but rest that awaits them. I have, I have given you rest. It is a kind of rest here most obviously, it's a kind of rest that's earthly, right? Wherever the promise of rest is mentioned in Joshua, it's always talking about settling into Canaan, the land of Canaan, the promised land. It anticipates a rest from hostility. It, it, it anticipates a, a rest from fighting their enemies, from the instability of life in the desert, and all the hardships of being a people without a home, just a homeless people without an identity and home, and place to call their own. And this is what the rest is talking about. It is, a, it is a earthly, physical, very real and practical rest. You all have felt it. You probably felt it this morning for the first time or maybe last night if you were out late. You felt the weather start to crack a little bit. I won't say cool down, but it wasn't, like you didn't want to cry in sadness, right? And you're like, it's coming, it's happening. It's like they, they, 40 years they've been in the desert in this oppressive Middle Eastern heat, and always wondering, will, will there be a rest for my body? But there's a second kind of rest. We know what that physical rest kind of feels like. There's a second kind of concept to rest, and it's a future rest that is not merely just physical and for our bodies and earthly, but something else. And it's foreshadowed here, but more completely revealed to us in the New Testament book of the Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews connects this physical rest that was promised to the people of God in the desert with another kind of rest promised to all who trust in God. Hebrews 4, 8 through 11 says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God forever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Clearly here, the writer of Hebrews is saying this. There is a kind of rest that even the great Joshua could not provide. There's a kind of rest that even the, the monument of a person, Moses, could not provide. There's a kind of rest that was only foreshadowed in this physical kind of rest that only God can provide. And it's a rest that we come into when we come into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. What is this rest? It is a level of rest that goes deeper than the body. It is a promised rest of God in terms of the full satisfaction of joy that comes to those who believe in Christ and in verse 11, the writer says, make every effort to enter into this rest. Don't let this rest pass you by. Eternal rest, salvation, 
redemption, acceptance, forgiveness, security, an identity that is anchored in the righteousness of Christ and not our righteousness. Make every effort to get there. And this may sound like a, a works-based salvation, but let me assure you it's, it's quite the opposite because effort is very different from earning. He doesn't say, do what you can to be good enough for this kind of rest. But to earn eternal rest would be to lay down our tools that we use for our spiritual striving to earn God's love, to lay them down and to rest in the joy that God gives through the work of his son. Earning our rest is like picking up all the tools at our disposal, picking up our skills, our mindset, our personality, our hard work, picking up everything that we have, resources in our own life, digging down deep and trying to accomplish our salvation with those things. Effort is different than earning. To put effort into our eternal rest is to lay down these tools and have confidence in the work that Jesus has done for us. It's an act of faith that causes us to stop with our anxious striving and to instead rest in Christ's work on our behalf. It's an attitude of wholehearted trust in God. To really believe God is with me and I could be strong and courageous because of that. God is fighting for me. He promises to me. He is working in me. He will not fail me. How do you exactly do that? How do you enter into that rest that we so long for? I'm actually asking you because I really don't know. I'm actually hoping you could give me. You know, this sermon's for me. This sermon's for you. And I don't have to be qualified on this principle because I didn't write this. That's kind of the nice thing about preaching. It's not about me being good at it. But this is something we're really bad at most of the time. We're weary, of course, in body and in mind at times, but we're also weary from this, the spiritual striving of trying to find our way into the grace of God through our means and whatever means possible. This sermon's for us, and God shows us the way, and he shows us through a common verse that I've, I've, I've never seen in this particular way before. Here's what's happening. You remember the original warning to enter into God's rest. It was given to the Israelite people. And, and it reminds us now, and to rest in the gospel, reminds us of the Israelite people. They were told that they could go into the land of Canaan, the promised land. He would give them the inhabitants of, of the people there and everything that was there in the land would be theirs. And so God said, I have prepared this place of rest for you. Just go and take it. And they say, we believe you but let's get our weapons first and let's make sure we get our swords first. Just in, we believe you, God, but just in case, and we're not doubting you, but let us do a couple push-ups first and like get our weapons and defend ourselves in case, you know, you forget or in case, you know, things go bad or turn bad. And they were scared. And after a little while, they came back to God and he said, we need to get our weapons. And he says, I've given it to you. Just go and take it. And they're like, well, just to be sure, we're going we're gonna to fight by our own strength for our own protection. And God replies, if, if you go in with swords and take the rest that I've promised to you, that would come to you through my might and my strength, then you will die by the sword. And that's exactly what happens. They go in and many of them die and never enter into that rest. Spoiler alert. Sorry about that. We'll get, we'll get to that in a few chapters. He says, if you fight by the sword, you will die by the sword. But if you go in 
in faith in what I've promised to you, then you will take it and you will find your rest. How do we find this soul level rest? Verse 13 and 15 tell us that only God provides it. He says in these two phrases, he says, the Lord your God is providing you a place for rest. This isn't a collaboration. This isn't a um, 50-50%. This isn't like, hey, God says, I've done my part. You got to do your part. No, God says, I have provided this place for you. I have handed them over to you. The Lord will give you rest to your brothers as he has to you. This soul level rest will never come as a result of proving our strength to God or manipulating his blessings from his hands through our own works or to go in with swords of self-sufficiency. It will never come from being religious or from being right or smart. It will always come from wholeheartedly trusting in God. Hebrews 4.10 says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. If we want to enter into God's rest, we have to stop working just like God stopped working. I don't mean working from our vocation and our jobs. We're putting an effort into our faith. If we want to enter into God's rest, we must know the real reason why we do anything. Are you trying to be your own savior? Are you trying to secure for yourself your own forgiveness through what you do? Are you trying to impress God or impress others? Are you trying to find acceptance and approval based on your record, your character, or or even by pretending to others? And we must abandon those things that we are trusting in and start trusting in God and what he has promised to us. Even intellectualism and being really smart and knowing the truth doesn't get us there. Intellectualism that is theologically accurate and exact does not necessarily translate into a soul level rest in God. You can know what he says. You can trust in what he says. You can know it better than anyone else. It doesn't make you at rest. How do I know? Because there's some really smart people who are really mean and really grumpy. Really great, like intellectual Christians who are striving to find that rest still. If you want to enter into God's rest, you must delight in the satisfaction of his work. And what is his work? What is God's work? Think about this. The people, Joshua and the people have to obey God's word and and believe it. And what is the word of God? All they had was Moses. They had the word that was given to Moses. That was it. We have so much more. We are in a better position to find satisfaction in the work of God because we know the fulfillment of that work. And that fulfillment, what is his work? His work was to give his son in love as a substitute for us. The pinnacle of his work, the greatest work, an act of his love, the ultimate work of God for our rest was to sacrifice his son on the cross for our sins, for him to take our guilt and our shame so that in his work, we would find rest that would come by believing in him. John 6, the disciples even asked Jesus, what, was, what must we do to do the work of God? And Jesus says, you want to know the work of God? Do you want to work for God? Do you want to do something for God? Do you want to be special to God? Here's the work. Believe in me. That is the work that we are called to do. That is the fight that we are called to fight. It is a fight of faith, of belief. In a culture that values achievement and status and comfort above all things, we shouldn't be surprised to see a culture filled with tired, weary, and restless people. 
who are striving to make a name for themselves and to find the rest that never comes because they're looking for it through their own accomplishments, through their own achievements. And this is exactly what happened to the Israelites. The result of their unbelief is restlessness. A life without rest in Jesus's completed work on the cross is a life of endless weariness. But the opposite is also true, that a life with rest, that rests in the completed work of Jesus on our behalf at the cross is a life of endless rest. Something that we await in its fullness and something that we have now in confidence. What is hope? What is faith? It is, faith is to hope in things yet unseen, right? It, it is to be certain of things that we have yet to obtain fully. And they have yet to obtain this land, this promised land and this rest on the other side of the Jordan. But Joshua here shows us a faith and the officers show us a faith of what it looks like to believe in God's word, to be unwaveringly devoted to it, to fill their hearts and minds with the truth of God's word, forcing out the, the, the mantra of the culture and even the mantra of our own insecurities. And then to know that they will get that rest. All who trust in God will find it. All who believe in Jesus and rest in him will find this rest. Let's not let that rest pass us by. Let's do the work of believing in him and trusting in his word. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.